calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. You're listening to The Pocket and the Pendant by Mark Jeffrey, read by the author. Produced by Mark Jeffrey in association with Michael and Evo's Dragon Page and Podiobooks.com. The full book is available in Podiobook format at Podiobooks.com. The full print version is available at Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, Lulu.com, or from the book's website and blog at www. .pocketandpendant.com Fourteen. Mr. Blister gets his. After a few moments, Max had recovered and they all had bowls of ice cream and they were greedily eating. So the pendant wasn't really real after all, Max said. Of course it was real, Anki replied. No, I mean, it's not really a device which removes free will. Of course it is, Anki repeated. Look at Jadith. Does she look like someone with free will to you? I swore an oath to Enlil, and I always keep my oath, as you should know from my tale. I don't understand, Max said. The pendant removes free will, but not of the people it is used upon. That's impossible. You can't take free will away from someone forcibly. They have to surrender it, of their own free will. That's the only way it can happen. So I created the pendant. Anyone who wants to control the will of others has already lost their free will to an obsession. The pendant removes the free will of anyone who lusts for the power to do such a thing to others by simply embodying the promise of such a power. Thus, their obsession enslaves them, the way Jadith's obsession for the Pendant enslaved her. Hence, the Pendant is a device which removes free will, just not in the way anyone expects. Enki allowed himself a soft laugh at yet another one of his cosmic pranks. In this way, I fulfilled my oath to Enlil and guarded against anyone evil enough to want to use such a device. So if Enlil had tried to use the Pendant, Enki nodded. The same thing would have happened to him. But what will happen to Jadith now? Casey asked. She's imprisoned inside the simulacrum of my book in the Pyramid of the Arches. I have removed all the exits for her. She will eventually realize she is inside of a phantom reality, that she has succeeded only in conquering characters in a book. But it is already too late for her. Her greed and madness led her into the trap of the Pendant. And inside of that prison, she will be compelled to live out the remainder of her days. Max nodded. 
Then Casey suddenly remembered something. The Archons! You are under attack! Oh, them! Anki sniffed. I know it didn't look so good when you left, but the magicians and I took care of them. For the time being, anyway. But what about the real world? Ian asked. And the Centurions in New York, and the Pocket. Enki laughed. All being taken care of as we speak. Jadith isn't the only one with a whispering stone, you know. I had one of the magicians send out a call to some friends on Nibiru. They have since arrived in sky chambers of their own, and rounded up most of the Centurions, and are presently freeing the serpents and mermaids. When they have finished removing the sky chambers from the Great Lawn, they will use the Chrononomicon to end the pocket, and time will resume, and humans, by and large, will be none the wiser that any of this happened at all. So why didn't you just use them to take care of Jadith? Max asked. Why did you need us? For several reasons. First, they couldn't get here in time from Nibiru. Remember, Jadith had the Chrononomicon, and time is stopped here. Only after I had Jadith inside of the Pyramid of the Arches did I have any leeway there. Second, I needed someone to lead Jadith into the trap. Enki leaned in close like he was telling them a secret. I just had to first be sure that you were the sort of kids who could get the job done. Here Enki winked. And lastly, I knew when I first saw you, Max, or should I say, Anlil, that you were the one I handed the pendant to all those years ago. The tyranny of the page is absolute, even for me. Hey, Ian said. Look! He pointed over to where the past siren in his red cloak and top hat were still soundly snoozing in a food universe shopping cart like a vagrant. He's still here. Casey looked startled. After all, here was her father, alive again. But Enki was not going to allow Casey to become despondent. You're here now. He's not your concern. This Johnny Siren has a long way to go yet before he becomes the Johnny Siren we saw act bravely in this cavern today. In fact, it's time we sent him on his way. After all, we want to make sure that Casey here ends up getting born, don't we? Enki rose and took hold of the shopping cart. The arch in front of him still showed the Flatiron Building in turn-of-the-century New York. Enki pushed the cart through. The horizon rippled as the cart moved between the centuries, and then rolled lazily onto the Broadway of a hundred years ago. As if on cue, Max and Petunia appeared again on the other side. Enki nodded a greeting at them as they took the cart and wheeled it away. Yeah, I never did get that, Max mused. Why did you have them send that past siren through in the first place? I mean, it failed. We couldn't use him to save Casey. Enki turned and looked him squarely in the eye. Oh no. On the contrary, it succeeded brilliantly. I didn't have him sent here to save Casey. He was sent here to save Siren. The foursome stopped eating their ice cream at once. I wanted Siren to get a good look at himself as he had been. Put some perspective on his situation when his moment of truth came. That was why the Max from the past was so shocked. I told him who it was I was trying to help. Casey looked at Enki with new wonderment. You did that for him? Of course, Enki replied. I told you I was put here to watch over all of humanity. And the last time I checked, that even includes Jonathan Roseblood Saranus. Thank you. Casey said softly. Enki nodded back. You're welcome. 
but now I think there is someone else who wants to speak with you. Enki pointed to the arch. Petunia, the young Petunia, was standing there by herself, waiting patiently. Casey suddenly knew what she was supposed to do. She rose and walked over to the arch. Max came with her, his heart tugging inside of him again at the mere sight of Petunia. For a moment, Max, Casey, and Petunia just stared at each other across the gulf of time which separated them. Then Casey reached into her backpack and brought out the pocket watch. This is for you, Grandma, Casey said. You need to hang on to this for me. For a long, long time. I'm going to need it someday. It's important. You give it to me no matter what my mother says. Casey tossed the pocket watch through the horizon of the arch. It crackled for a moment, and then the object materialized on the other side. Petunia caught it and looked at it with wonder. She looked back up at Casey and nodded solemnly. I will, I promise, Petunia said as seriously as she could. She tucked her pocket watch away under her dirty smock dress as though it were a precious gem. After another moment, she scampered away. And now, Enki sighed, it is time for you all to return back to where you came from, and for us to part ways. The centurion suddenly walked into the chamber. Max leapt to his feet and his heart jumped in his chest. But Enki laughed. No need for alarm. Not all centurions from Nibiru are wicked. Only those working for Jadith. This one is a friend. He is Abdiel. The centurion removed his faceplate and they found themselves looking up at a rugged man with a smiling face. You have no need to fear me, children. And in fact, it is I who should fear you. From the tale I have just heard of how you took down the daughter of Enlil. Abdiel threw his head back and laughed uproariously. They all breathed a sigh of relief. Then Abdiel caught sight of Max and bowed on one knee before him. And to you, Anlil, I give special reverence. Max looked up quizzically at Enki, who did not choose to shed any further light on the situation. Abdiel rose. He will take you back to where you were when the pocket began. Yes, and many of those Serp kids are already back where they belong, Abdiel was saying to Enki. A year older, maybe, or maybe not a year wiser. Certainly a lot happier than they were under Jada, though, that's for sure. Enki nodded. Well then, Max, Casey, Ian, and Sasha, I thank you for what you have done, and wish you well. Will we see you again? Casey asked. I should hope not, Enki replied. If you do, it will only mean there is more trouble, and the tyranny of the page has sent you my way once again. Well, maybe on a school vacation we'll find a book and come visit you anyway, Casey said. Ha! <laughs> After this, I'm going to have all the books rounded up and hidden for good, Enki replied. But if you can find one, feel free to try. And with that, he laughed. Farewell, children. Enki disappeared. Abdiel took the children from the Pyramid of the Arches and brought them aboard a small sky chamber. From there, Max had a sense of deja vu, as they broke the surface of the real Luxi Isle and then headed back out across the Atlantic Ocean. It had seemed they had already done all that before, but that had been inside of a book in the Pyramid of the Arches, and none of it had been real. This time, however, it was. Yet they did not fly towards New York. Instead, they veered south, hitting the continental United States somewhere over South Carolina. They continued overland westward until they came at last to the town which the serpents and mermaids had taken over in central California and set down the sky chamber. This is where I leave you, Ian, Abdiel said. I'm going to take you to the hotel where you were staying with your father. Then I'm going to put you back into normal time. 
I'm going to remove your ability to remain in the pocket. Ian nodded. <sighs> we managed to clean up most of what the Serps did here. You know, the green paint, the hats, the clothes, or lack thereof. And here, Abdiel glowered as if this were Ian's fault. But some of it was just plain unfixable. I'm afraid there will always be stories told in this town, speculating about what exactly it was that happened at 338 on April 8th. They all left the sky chamber and walked towards the hotel where he had been staying with his father when the pocket had first hit. Weird to finally be going back to normal life again, just like that, Ian said as they entered the hotel lobby, finally getting sad. I guess this is what I wish for, though. Yeah, Max nodded. It is very weird. Oh, goodbye, Max, Ian said and grabbed him. They embraced for a moment and then Max let him go. Oh, Ian said, looking around the hotel lobby. Without thinking, he took a pen right out of the hand of the manager. Uh, sorry, Ian said sheepishly to Abdiel, who glowered at him for further messing with the time-frozen inhabitants. I'll put it right back, I promise. Ian scribbled something on a piece of paper and handed one to Casey, one to Max, and one to Sasha. Here's my email and telephone number. Make sure you get in touch. They both nodded. I will, Sasha said out loud and kissed him on the cheek. I promise. Ian turned red. Ian replaced the pen as he promised into the hand of the manager, and then Abdiel took him up to his hotel room. A moment later, Abdiel was back. Ian's been returned. Now for you, Sasha. Abdiel dropped Sasha off in a town a few minutes north by Sky Chamber. It had evidently been where she had first come from before Ace had brought her into the Serps. Casey and Sasha talked for a few moments alone in front of Sasha's house before they left. I'm, they both said at once. You go, they both said again, and then laughed. Then Casey said, No, I'm really sorry. I didn't mean what I said. I'm sorry we didn't get along better. Sasha nodded. No, I was really mean to you when you first showed up. I shouldn't have been. I take it all back. Here. Sasha ran inside and got a pen and paper from her own house. Call me. Promise? Casey took it and grinned. Yes, I totally promise. Are we through? Abdiel groaned impatiently. The girls nodded. Great. Come with me, Sasha. He took her inside and emerged a few minutes later. Okay, you two are my last stop. As they approached Starland from the air, Max felt a foreboding deep in his gut. There was much here he had left behind and completely forgotten about. Now, it was all about to come back to life once again. The Sky Chamber landed near the Jitterati Cafe. There was the ambulance, just where he had left it, and Mr. Blister with his notepad, and the jumpy kid from the bookstore who had been watching Petunia. Petunia! With a wrench, he remembered Petunia was inside the ambulance, dying. Abdiel, Max said. Leave Casey with me. I'll make sure she gets back home once time starts up again. The centurion nodded. Enki told me you'd probably ask me to do that, and he gave me permission. Max nodded. Thanks. Oh, one more thing, Abdiel said. I put a big mattress underneath that guy you knocked over at the Starland Museum of Antiquities. On the stairs. You know, the one with the vases. So he doesn't break his neck when time starts up again. Oh, Max jumped. He'd completely forgotten about that guy. Thankfully, someone was paying attention. Thanks, he said sheepishly. No problem. And the vases. I grabbed them all and stacked them up for him. They won't break. Max nodded again. Thanks. And one last thing. Enki asked me to tell you to call this number. 
Abdiel handed Max a piece of paper. You started a bank account back in the early part of this century. It seems you've amassed quite a bit of wealth with just the interest alone over the last hundred years. Well, between that and some investments you made, it's well into the hundreds of millions of dollars now. Enki has arranged for you to be able to access your money through one of his contacts. He'll make certain you have no trouble. You know, no awkward questions about how a 12-year-old kid could have started this account a hundred years ago, that sort of thing. Call this number. This guy will take care of everything. Max nodded, stunned. You don't have to stay at the Starland home for boys anymore if you don't want to, Abdiel told him quietly, as though this were a secret someone might overhear. Enki wanted you to know you'd earned the right to do whatever you wanted to do, and to make sure you had the means you needed to make whatever choice you wanted. Max looked at Casey. Did you hear that? She nodded. Good, because I wanted to make sure I wasn't dreaming. She smiled. But all the world's a dream, Max, and we're just the dreamers. Max nodded. For the first time, I think I believe that. Then he remembered Petunia. Oh no, Casey, I almost forgot. You have to come with me. He led her around Mr. Blister and up into the open ambulance. Casey looked down and gasped. Grandma? Petunia opened her eyes. Casey, she said. Max... Max blinked. Time had started up again. The pocket was gone. People were suddenly moving around, talking. Paramedics scrambled around them. Mr. Blister was scribbling away, just outside. Abdiel and his sky chamber had disappeared as if they had never existed. Hello, Grandma, Casey said. We just saw you, in the arch, when you were a little girl. We just came from there. I just gave you the pocket watch. Petunia coughed and then said, I thought that might be it when I first saw Max in the bookstore. I thought it might finally be that time. And I knew you were almost the right age. You looked like how you did when I first saw you. And you did what I asked, Casey said, crying now. You gave it to me, no matter what my mom said. Petunia nodded. Well, yes, of course I did. Casey kissed her forehead suddenly. Oh, don't go, Grandma! But Petunia shook her head. I'm sorry, Casey, but it's time. I've lived a very long life. I can feel it. But just now, I had the oddest feeling, like a second stretched into an eternity. But now that you're here, I'm happy, and I'm ready. Petunia smiled serenely. It was almost too much to bear. Max, quick! A voice bellowed from below. Mr. Blister. He had spotted them. But Max was hardly scared of him anymore. Blister was almost laughable compared to what they had faced down in the last few weeks. When Max ignored him, Blister started climbing up into the ambulance like an oversized praying mantis, bloodshot eyes shaking with fury in their sockets. Blister was about to launch into Max and drag him away when he found himself looking down at Petunia. Her gaze held him. She gathered the last of her strength, rose up partly off the gurney, and said, You leave him alone, you wicked man! This boy has done more for you than you will ever know! With that, the even tone of her heart flatlining filled the ambulance. Petunia fell back onto the gurney, dead. Casey broke into tears. Blister stared at her in horror. He dropped his pad, but the sound of it hitting the ground startled him, set him into motion again. 
Without a word, he tried to take Max by the arm and lead him from the ambulance. But Max shrugged off his hand. No, I'm not going with you. I am your legal guardian, Master Quick, Blister replied icily. You will accompany me this instant. I said no, Max repeated. You're not anymore. Something about Max's tone and the way Petunia had accosted him just before dying finally rattled Blister. Mentally, he retreated. When you get hungry, you'll be back. Then you'll beg for your old bunk at the Starland home for boys, Blister hissed before turning and leaving. In a moment, he was gone. Max and Casey went to Casey's home. Her mom was confused as to where she had disappeared to from her point of view. But I missed you so much, Casey said. Her mom was, of course, baffled by all this. It had only been less than an hour by her watch since she had last seen Casey. It was now 4.30 in the afternoon of April 8th. The eclipse had finished. When Casey introduced Max as Max Quick, Casey's mom blinked and looked him up and down like he was a figment of her imagination. You know, my mother used to tell me stories about a Max Quick she knew, she said. Then Casey told her mom about Petunia, and she broke down into tears and rushed out the door to the hospital. While Casey and her mom were at the hospital filling out forms and the like on behalf of Petunia, Max discovered he still had Casey's mom's cell phone. He figured she wouldn't mind terribly if he made a call, so he dialed the number Abdiel had given him. The delightful gentleman who answered was most helpful and knowledgeable. He had been expecting Max's call, he said, and was looking forward to meeting this extraordinary young man. His client, a mysterious yet very wealthy Mr. E, had told him much about. The man immediately set Max up with a debit card, which he could pick up from a branch office here in Starland, and some pocket cash. And over the course of the initial conversation with this man, Max learned about his various accounts and investments, and one in particular caught his attention immediately. After some pointed inquiries, Max hung up the phone, certain of his position. Less than an hour later, Max was at the Starland home for boys, knocking on the door of one Mr. Blistier. He sneered, opening his office. I told you you would be back. Max entered the office, and behind him entered two men, both attorneys. What is this? Who are you two? These, Max indicated the gentleman with him, are representatives of the trustees of the Starland Home for Boys. One of the attorneys cleared his throat. <clears> throat> As you may or may not know, this institution was founded in 1963 with the express purpose of creating a safe haven for orphans and homeless children who otherwise have no other place to go. The money behind this institution was provided by the generous contributions of a single donor from whose account a monthly amount is withdrawn to pay the salaries and pay all the bills and maintenance, etc., etc. Do you know, Mr. Blister, is it? Do you know who that single donor was? Blister had been listening to all this with stark horror plain on his face. He shook his head, no. It was provided by Maximilian Quick, Sr., the late father of Maximilian Quick, Jr., whom you see before you. Blister gulped. He hadn't known this. 
Furthermore, all voting shares, rights, privileges, etc., over the control of the nonprofit corporations, Starland Home Corp Partners, passed upon the death of Quick Senior to Quick Junior, a special dispensation and writ of attorney provided for the proxy representation by us, the attorneys present, to execute legally the will of the sole controlling entity, Max Quick being a minor, whose wishes we represent. And we are here to carry out that will, Mr. Blistier. Yes, Blister managed to choke out. And that will is, you're fired, Max finished. You've swaggered around this place and tortured enough kids here over the years. So you're done. Blister turned paler than Johnny Siren. But, but you, you can't. You have no authority. You're just a kid. Security police officers quickly entered the room behind them, stood at either side of Blister. Please empty out your desk. We're here to escort you off the premises. Within a half hour, Blister had been summarily evicted from the Starland Home for Boys. Ice cream was served in heaping amounts in the cafeteria for the cheering and hollering boys, who were overjoyed at being finally freed of the tyranny of Mr. Blister's reign. Max presided over the celebration, smiling like a hero. Later that week, Max attended Petunia's funeral with Casey and her mother. She was happy, you know, Max whispered to Casey. She told me that before I met you. She said she had lived a long and happy life. Casey nodded. I know. She had you to thank for it. I don't know exactly what you did, but I'm sure it's true. Max laid flowers on Petunia's grave and whispered, Goodbye, little girl. Afterwards, Max asked Casey what she was doing over the weekend. Sasha's coming down. She's going to sleep over. Max smiled and nodded. Maybe we can all hang out, see a movie or something. Max nodded. That would be fun. And after that weekend, Max found himself, once again, at the same bus stop he had always stood at every day that he could remember outside of his self-imposed cryptonesia. The pocket hadn't ended school. It had only delayed it for a little bit. And there was Jack McNulty, smug and full of himself as always. He demanded that Max punch himself in the nose. A good punch. One that hurt. A lot. Max cringed. He balled his fist up tight. McNulty panted with anticipation, getting ready to laugh. Max became a blur. A flurry of punches pounded McNulty from all angles. He flailed his arms and tried to defend himself, but it was no use. He couldn't even see Max. When it was over, McNulty was on the ground, nose bleeding, eye sockets black and aching, and his gums chewing bruises. Max was suddenly still in front of him. That was payback for all the times you made me punch myself in the head. Though, it was really my fault all along for letting you intimidate me. But now, that's all over with, McNulty. Now, this is my bus stop. You're going to have to punch yourself in the head if you want to get on this bus today. McNulty just stared at him. He couldn't believe what had just happened. Max made a quick move like he was going to attack him. McNulty cringed and let out a little, ah, of fright. The other kids at the bus stop burst into laughter. Ah, I'm just kidding. You don't have to punch yourself after all. Nobody should ever do that to someone else. Max reached out and helped McNulty to his feet. Ah, too bad though, Max whispered to himself. But he knew, even as he slipped the bracelet from his wrist, that he couldn't push it. Anki wouldn't approve. From somewhere nearby, Abdiel howled in laughter and disengaged the Kronanomicon. 
Even Enki allowed himself a chuckle as he watched from his aisle. And Max smiled as he caught a fleeting glimpse of Abdiel's sky chamber as it arced into the heavens, leaving a trail of shimmering light behind it like jewel dust of the dream time. The End listening to The Pocket and the Pendant by Mark Jeffrey, read by the author, produced by Mark Jeffrey in association with Michael and Evo's Dragon Page and Podiobooks.com. The full book is available in Podiobook format at Podiobooks.com. The full print version is available at Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, Lulu.com, or from the book's website and blog at www.pocketandpendant.com 